As human beings, we live with death constantly at our heels. It is not necessarily rapid in its pursuit, but it is relentless. And whether we see it coming or not, it inevitably overtakes us. The thing which we can be more certain of than anything else is that ultimately none of us will escape death. This is true of me, of you, and of all those we care about the most and would like to see spared, and even of the physical universe itself. Astrophysicists seem pretty much agreed that at some point the universe will quit expanding and that there will be a reversal of the Big Bang. All the matter in the universe will contract in the Big Crunch contract into a point of infinite density. No matter, no space, no time, no you, no me. That, of course, is being optimistic. Stephen Hawking thought it likely, or more likely, that the universe, that the Earth would be wiped out by a collision with a big asteroid long before then. However, my point is not whether our demise comes quickly or slowly, but that it is certain. We can and certainly do deny the inevitability of death. Deny it in, not in the, in the sense of believing death is unreal, but in the sense of dismissing it as personally relevant. Ernst Becker argued in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, the denial of death, that most of us are very much immersed in this denial, and that it is, in fact, a source of much of our individual and societal neurosis and even psychosis. But acknowledged or not, death is always at our heels. Psalm 90, verse 12, therefore prays, O God, teach us to number our days that we might acquire a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90 anticipates the existential philosophers by, oh, 2,500 years or more. There the poet looks directly into the abyss of death, the transitoriness of the world, of life, of human existence, of what it means if finally, in the end, everything, Absolutely everything comes to nothing. The despair, the hopelessness, the meaninglessness, and futility of it all. We finish our years, he wrote, like a sigh. Their boast is only labor and sorrow, for soon it is cut off and we fly away. In Fargo, Season 2, there is a scene with the character Noreen Vanderslice and Ed Blumquist, who both work in Bud's Meat Market in the little town of Laverne, Minnesota. Ed is the butcher in the shop, and um, the, which he, he dreams of purchasing. Noreen is the cashier. Her Life has obviously been difficult. She is a legally emancipated 
teen living alone above the shop. She spends much of her time behind the cash register reading Camus' dark novels of existential despair. Their conversation goes something like this. Noreen, personally, I'm not sure why you're making all this effort. Ed, gonna buy the shop, be my own boss. Noreen, and? Ed, and what? That's the American dream. Noreen, what's the point? Just gonna die anyway. Ed, what do you mean? Noreen Camus says, knowing we're all going to die makes life a joke. Ed, so what? You just, you just give up? Noreen, you could kill yourself, get it over with. Ed, okay, okay that's, that's not, I mean, I mean, come on, you gotta, you gotta try. Noreen, no. Ed, you go to school, you get a job, you start a family. Noreen, and die. <laughs> Ed, that's, would you please stop saying that? I, I'm, I'm going to live a long, long life. My, my grandpa was 96. Noreen, at which point he did what? Died. Noreen Vanderslice is correct, as was Camus, the author of the book she is reading. If the abyss is bottomless, if everything comes to nothing, nothing at all, then there is no ultimate meaning, no purpose, no point, no value to anything we say, think, feel, or do. But the postmodern world cannot live with its own logical conclusion. None of the actual famous Existentialist philosophers are still alive. They're all quite dead. But even when alive, neither they, neither the real writers like existentialist writers like Camus, who was sadly killed when the car he was riding in veered off the highway and smashed into a tree, nor the fictional Nor Noreen are able to live as if death renders life absurd, as if death means that everything comes to nothing in the end. All of the existentialists eventually capitulated and came up with some sort of a meaning to life. In the Fargo film, Noreen, in spite of her fascination with existentialism, is not very good at practicing it as a philosophy, as, as a way of life. She does the sort of things girls her age all do. She reads, she flirts with boys, she babysits, she goes to school, she works, she is gentle and caring. And when she and Ed are attacked by a professional killer in the butcher shop and a massive blaze erupts, she fights fiercely for survival and helps rescue young Charlie, one of the killers, by helping to drag him from the burning butcher shop. No one can live as if everything comes to nothing at death. I find something the liberal theologian John Cobb 
wrote, um, uh, interesting. Cobb wrote, in polite circles, serious discussion of what comes next, what comes after death, is worth is worse than unfashionable in polite circles. What remains is a vague reassurance that all will be well. Since, Cobb says, no content or evidence is ever suggested, the reassurance that all will be well is not very reassuring. Later in season two of Fargo, Noreen shares Camus' gloomy existential creed with Betsy Solverson. Betsy has terminal cancer and is the mother of a six-year-old daughter, Molly, whom she is about to leave motherless. Noreen says, Camus said knowing we're going to die makes life absurd. Well, replies sick and fatigued Betsy, I don't know who that is, but I'm guessing he doesn't have a six-year-old girl. He's French, answers Noreen. Uh, groans Betsy, I don't care if he's from Mars. Nobody with any sense would say something that foolish. Betsy's reply that whoever said death makes life absurd never had a six-year-old daughter is a feel-good answer. But it ignores the reality. If Betsy's life and her husband lose life and their daughter Molly's life, if every life ends at the grave, there is no meaning, not even in the deepest feelings of a dying mother and simply thinking or wishing that everything will be well in the end does not make it so. So then, says the poet of Psalm 90, we end our days with a sigh. For the masses of men and women, the psalm notes, even if they live to a very old age, life is not only fleeting, but often full of trouble and sorrow. And that's the human condition. That's the human conundrum, a mystery that can be penetrated only by a very deep wisdom. Consequently, verse 12 of, first of Psalm 90 is a prayer. Teaches us, teach us, it prays, O God, to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom now notice how this prayer continues in verses 13 and 14. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. The Hebrew word, translated as unfailing love, is hesed. It is a word that gets translated into English in a number of ways. Steadfast love, loving kindness, goodness, mercy, unfailing love, or simply as love or kindness. 
Inherent in this difficult-to-translate word is the idea that love, that God's love, never ever lets go of the thing or person that is love. When Paul writes in Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is not teaching a new, newly formulated philosophy, but rather is repeating the basic thought of the Old Testament, of Psalm 90. He is stating one of the most ancient and basic principles of the Old Testament from the Christian perspective. I'll try to state it as best I can uh, as four premises. Number one, trust in the resurrection and eternal life begins with and flows from belief trust, or faith in God. Not in God as a vague, nebulous, impersonal force or energy that can be controlled like electricity or the force in Star Wars, but in Yahweh. The Bible never seeks to prove the existence of God, but assumes the reality of God as naturally as it assumes the reality of earth and wind and fire and water. For both the ancient Hebrews and the earliest Christians, there is no questioning of God's reality, of God's existence. Instead, there is simply the assumption and the assertion that God is. Two, Scripture assumes that the very nature of this ultimate and mysterious reality we call God is living, personal, good, and trustworthy. That is, God not only loves, but is love. Now, not only God not only acts justly, but God is just. God not only acts morally, but God is morality. God not only saves, but God is salvation. God is not God not only gives light, but God is light. And that is the most that is the, the most all that is most precious and noblest about us as human beings, our, our spiritual consciousness, our sense and practice of justice and love and truth and goodness and beauty is eternal. Not as in an abstract philosophical idea or concept, but as the reality of what God is. When we live, truth beauty, and goodness. We are living the divine life, the life of the Holy Spirit, a life that cannot be destroyed. Three, God can do nothing incongruent with God's own character or nature. As Paul put it, Christ cannot deny himself. God cannot lie because God is truth. God's children, God's people, those united to God in faith and love must be saved from death because the character, the nature of God 
is to create, is to care for, is to save, is to make alive. God cannot discard what is most precious to God. We are safe in the hands of God. In fact, it is only in God's hands that we are completely safe. Four, if the individual can commune with God, then the individual person must matter to God. And if the individual matters to God, he or she must share God's eternity. For if God is truly ultimate in love and in power, then it is inconceivable that God would scrap what is precious to God. John Bailey therefore said, It is in conjunction with God that the promise of eternal life resides. What has been united in love with God must be retained, enriched, reinforced. In short, I believe in the resurrection of God, the resurrection of Christ, because I believe in and trust the God of the Old and New Testaments. I believe, along with the first Christians, that Jesus of Nazareth was, although I do not understand it or know how, was resurrected from the dead and is the living Lord of life. It's not that I believe or trust in some vague idea that love is so wonderful that it couldn't come to an end, but that I believe in something concrete, specific. I also believe this religious hope is supported by natural science. If I understand them correctly, physicists believe that if you could somehow gain knowledge of the state of everything, particles, energy, etc., that was floating around or whatever it does in the universe, as well as comprehend all the physical processes or natural laws that govern the universe, you could, in theory, trace back from all of that knowledge or information and figure out what inputs resulted in the current state of things. So, for example, if you took one of the space vacations now being offered and while out for a sightseeing walk, accidentally lost your wallet so that it floated off out there somewhere among the stars, then no matter what happened to it, you could, by measuring all the resulting particle waves, etc., work backwards and figure out exactly what was in the wallet to the point where you'd be able to figure out the actual words on your driver's license. Now, the actual ability to do this is obviously way beyond human capability or knowledge. But the idea is that while the natural laws of the universe make it insanely difficult, they do not render it impossible. This, it seems to me, is the current positive, is the, is, um, this, it seems to me, connects positively 
with the idea that it is not the material of my body which now actually uh, has completely changed a number of times since my birth, but the immensely complicated pattern of atoms in which it is organized. I have no intellectual problem in agreeing with the quantum mathematician and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne. It seems to me, he said, an intelligible and coherent hope that God will remember the pattern that is me and recreate it in a new environment of God's choosing by a great act of final resurrection. I'll have more to say about all of this in the future, but for now I will conclude by simply saying that while being human means death is always at our heels, hope is always before us and life within us.